Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Hi, everyone. My name is Mary, and I am your host for Leveling Up. Today, I have with me Amber Russell joining us from Dutchie. Amber is leading talent management in programs at Dutchie, but has been at quite a few other incredible companies, including Pega and Vistaprint. Amber, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So today we're diving into a wide variety of conversations, but one thing that you had mentioned in a previous conversation with me was around how companies can enhance the employee experience and really design programs and benefits that meet employees where they are right now and today. I want to get into all of these different topics, but I'd love to start with just understanding how you ended up in your current career path and what it is that you're passionate about within the employee experience space. Yeah, absolutely. I would say I have lots and lots of opinions on employee experience, but I'm sure we'll get to those. In terms of my career, I have been really lucky in the sense of if I look back on my career, I really feel like it's built on taking chances. My career in people and, and HR started many years ago, interviewing for a small title insurance company in Philadelphia. And at the time, I'd gone in and interviewed to be an admin assistant and was offered a role in the HR team. And that just took me on a different path. And that followed suit. I was working with construction management. I interviewed for an HR generalist role and instead was offered an opportunity to be a project success manager, which was like, I had zero relevant experience in that space and was totally unqualified. But I just had a leader who believed that I could do it and was willing to mentor me into that role. At Vistaprint, I had the opportunity. I joined as a business partner. I loved it. I was supporting the organization. And then I was asked to pivot and take on an HRIS implementation and a global operations team in which I, again, had no relevant experience in, but just leaders who believed in me. And so I think if I look back, there's a trend there, which I think is really amazing in the sense that I've had leaders who have been willing to take the chance and develop. And that's led me to great mentorship. And I'm sure formed my strong opinions on employee experience and leadership as well. So you've jumped in from multiple angles and had these different experiences then that come together and got you to where you are today. I'd love to hear a little bit more around how you're thinking about employee experience and whether that's as you start your new role at Dutchie or how you've approached it in the past. What is employee experience to you? Yeah, I love this question. And I think it is a strong focus of what I will be doing, at, which I'm really excited about to lead the, the talent management. Again, like you said, I've really approached HR from all angles. And so I feel like this is my opportunity to take all of the tools in my toolbox and help really foster a culture. So my belief is that I am not the designer or the owner of employee experience. It's not my role. And it's not really the role of HR. My role is to foster the culture that's already organically growing in a kind of silly analogy, like I tend the garden that's already growing and maybe I plant some new seeds or grow some new plants or or correct the dying plants and put us on a, a different path. But I don't build the culture. I really just enable what is already being built by the team members and by the employees that are there. And I think you do that by just really creating like a strong culture of trust and listening. I think engagement happens organically when teams trust that the people organization is going to respond to their needs and that they're going to then roll programs out that mean the most to them. I don't ever want to be in an organization where it's a push model only. 
and you are making decisions on behalf of the employees and pushing out what you think is right for them without gut checking it to say, hey, is this actually what you want and what it should look like? And for me, I think I approach employee experience through a few different basic principles. The one is to be intentional about what your employee experience is and define it in detail and make sure that you really understand what it is. Solicit feedback and participation from your organization every step of the way, not just once a program is rolled out, but how is it working? And we'll talk a little bit more about Agile and my approach to work. And I think that's a real big enabler for us to be able to experiment and try new things and then pivot and evolve on those. And then I think the last one is just really being willing to make trade-offs and sacrifices to ensure that you're protecting that culture and that employee experience that you're building. So make sure that when you're intentional about it, there'll be decisions that you make in support of it and the decisions that you make that might be easier or a more cost-effective decision, but they don't actually enable that experience the way that you want. Absolutely. So leveling up is really about innovative approaches to leading great organizations. And all of our episodes to date have brought on smart people who've been in a variety of organizations taking different approaches to employee engagement, employee experience. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you've applied agile processes to your employee programs and experiences. And I'd love to hear, even just starting from the top, what is agile and how have you applied this approach to your programs in the past? Yeah. So Agile is a methodology. It was initially created in the developer space. And so it was created as a way to drive that community to deliver innovative solutions through cross-collaboration and highly prioritized work. So that's like a bunch of words. <laughs> Essentially, what that breaks down to is that there's a bunch of different work practices that you can adopt through Agile. But at its core, what it really means is breaking pieces of work down into the smallest iterative that provides the highest value. So we call those MVPs. That's other companies will adopt company-specific terms, but MVP is a minimum viable product. And so it's looking at every large piece of work that you have to do and saying, okay, but what is the smallest piece that we can deliver that's going to drive the highest value? And then how do we we roll that out. Let's focus on that and that only. And that allows you to highly prioritize your work. So stepping back from the beginning, I think what how Agile sets up is it's very cross-collaborative. So you're identifying your stakeholders off of the bat. You're engaging with those stakeholders and you're letting them know that there's an expectation of them. And what is that expectation early on? And can they meet it? Because if not, then you have to pivot that MVP. So I started my introduction to Agile at Vistaprint and Vistaprint was doing something really unique there in the sense of they found that Agile was working really well at the technical level. And so within our engineering and, and development population, and they wanted to roll it out to the broader organization. And my job as a business partner and really our entire job within that HR function. So we weren't even called HR. We were called talent and experience there. And we rolled up through technology. So not through a typical GNA function. We were branded as talent and experience. We rolled up through technology. And a large part of what we were doing, we're collaborating with the organization to bring Agile to life throughout the rest of the organization, but also just from a culture program standpoint really collaborating strongly with the organization there. At Vistaprint, I had the opportunity to act as product owner for the HRIS implementation. And that was really my first understanding of how Agile worked. And so I was working within a technology team. I was holding kind of an Agile leadership role. And my expectation was 
that I would bring the employee experience view into the project without technically leading it. And I think that Agile is a big enabler for you to be able to lead projects and teams without holding deep expertise in that area. So I had really strong, technically proficient employees working with me, but I wasn't technically proficient in that area. And it was okay because I was bringing the skill set of an expert in what the business needed and wanted to represent. So right now, I still run my teams in a very agile way. And how that comes to life is in a few ways. We break all of our work down into two week to one month sprints. So everything that we do is planning for kind of the immediate future and saying, what do we need to get done within this next month? And within that next month, what are the trade-offs that we may need to make on existing work? Who do we have dependencies on and can they deliver on those dependencies? And that relates to us holding what we call collaborative governance meetings. And so we go in and we hold these governance meetings and we're super transparent with our teams on the work that we're doing, on what's expected to be accomplished, on what's expected of them. And then we get the buy-in from that early on. In addition, we use a couple different tools. We use Trello, which is essentially like a virtual Kanban board. And so a Kanban board is a way to manage your work that's in progress and the work that's coming up. And so you'll have a, it really is truly like a visual board and it can be tangible in the sense of you use post-it notes and you move them around, or it can be something virtual. And it is your work that's to be done, your work that you're doing and your work that's completed. And so that you always have a clear view of where things are, where your trade-offs and dependencies are, and how fast you're moving them through those different processes. You can see where things get stuck and why they're getting stuck. And so as a leader, it's a great way for me to see the blockers to my team so that I can go through and then relieve those blockers in some way. And a great way to see where we all may need to swarm. So we might have a conversation and say, hey, you know what? We have a huge blocker in enabling new employee orientation for next week. Everyone is going to focus on that today to get it over the finish line. So it allows a lot of flexibility in your work that's really results-driven in a highly collaborative way. And then you constantly feel like you are making progress on your work because you're rolling things out in an iterative way. So something is always coming down the pipeline as opposed to working on something for six or seven months and then rolling it out. And it's likely at that point going to need tweaks because it's irrelevant to the organization at that point. Got it. So it's really a lot about communicating what's happening and then being able to make sure everybody's bought in before you jump in but then moving quickly from there. Is that a really simplified summary of- Very, yep, absolutely. And it allows teams the ability to experiment and fail and pivot quickly because you're not investing too much time into something. So we can try it. And if it doesn't work, that's okay, we'll change it. We haven't taken a year to get it out the door. Exactly. And so if you're thinking about the types of programs that you've rolled out, you mentioned employee onboarding systems, things like that. Can you give some examples of how- this has played out in actual systems internally that our listeners might be doing within their organizations? Yeah. So I'll give you an easy one and then I'll give you probably a more complex one. And I would say the easiest one is certainly in the HRIS space. We have in my last two roles, I've had the opportunity to implement success factors from the ground up and then additionally inherit a success factors tool that really needed to be made healthy, fix the foundation of it. And so in those ways, it's a very simplified approach. And so we are, say, enabling a performance management process in the tool. And so the performance management process is defined by somebody else on the team. They come to us and say, this is what we're planning on doing. We need it done by June when it's, say, February. 
like, how do you enable this in the tool? And so what we do is then we do dive into kind of requirements gathering, which is the idea of, okay, what is everything that you need to see in this tool? What does success look like for it? How do we want employees to feel about it? How do we want managers to engage and get a true understanding of what the experience actually is? Then go back and do some deep diving into, okay, so what is the system technically capable of and, and what can we enable and what can we not? We generally try to always use the approach, whether it's systems or program related, of keep it simple, keep it at its most basic core, try not to heavily customize anything. And so then we kind of figure out where the customization is. We go back, we lay out the roadmap to the team. We tell the team, this is exactly what it's going to require of you. This is the timeline for us to do it. And those timelines are generally broken down in two or three week increments. So this is what we're going to do in the first two weeks. Then we'll add it onto here. Then we'll ask you to test the process. Then we'll gather feedback for it. Once all of that is agreed upon, you work it out, you meet pretty regularly. We do weekly show me if any of the work progress that we've had and that kind of governance meeting to make sure we're gathering feedback along the way. And then when we get to the end, Everyone is almost an embedded expert in what has happened because they've been following along as opposed to us going back and doing all of the work behind closed doors and then showing it at the end and saying, okay, does this work for you? Here you go, accept it. So on the technology side, I think that's a really easy, simplified way. On the program side, it's a little less you know, simplified. I think that it really breaks down into work management styles at that point. So we're heavy users of Trello. Within my organization, the point of that is so that there's transparency in the work, but that there's also an opportunity for us to capture kind of the details of what's going on and where the blockers are. And like I said, how work is progressing so that we can swarm on that. And then if we're rolling out, say, global new hire orientation, we take an iterative approach into everything that we do. So we may decide to do it country by country, or we may decide to take it on only within, say, an engineering function first and pilot it there and make sure it works. And then we iteratively add onto it and enhance it till it's a full scale program, but you're feeling the effects of it a lot sooner than, say, taking nine months and rolling it out on the same day to an entire population. Thank you so much for walking through that. The entire world stopped, not completely, obviously, but in March of last year, and a lot of these programs that organizations or maybe considering rolling out in the coming years suddenly became a topic that they had to roll these programs out now immediately. I'm curious how this structure helps your teams or people within your network make more wise decisions. This time last year, as we were all moving to a remote culture, is this something that came up where you were very grateful to have Agile in your toolkit? I think very grateful for the flexibility that Agile provides. And so Agile is an opportunity to be able to pivot without feeling like you're wasting time or effort because you're investing small increments with high value. When we pivoted to the pandemic and everybody worked from home and there was a ton of work that arose that wasn't initially on our roadmap. It's very much a kind of best laid plans approach to it. And so I think that we were really grateful to have the opportunity to pivot and know exactly what was done and what wasn't done and have a really clear understanding of what our roadmap was going to be. Because then at that point, you're driving trade-off conversations. You don't ever, when I feel like you're at a place where you're asking your teams to do more with less, but you certainly want them to make sure that they're providing the highest impact to the organization. And so we have a really clear understanding of saying, okay, so what wasn't initially on our roadmap was wellness, say, that wasn't something that we were going to focus on as an organization initially, because 
it wasn't the highest priority. Then the pandemic happened and mental health became a really important component of what we were going to offer to our employees. And we were able to pretty quickly pivot to enable any of those experiences because we knew exactly what we were planning on doing. And then we could have a prioritization conversation to say this higher priority than X or lower. And then we were able to build out that next increment of work based off of that. It's such a good point, which is you weren't stuck inside one project that was going to take another eight months to complete. You had the ability to quickly transition to the new norm that the world was facing. Given how you've used Agile in your space, do you find that this is where the HR world is heading or is this becoming more popular within uh, talent development, talent management, really employee experience overall? Are you seeing a trend here or is this something that you think is still pretty new? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that I have the unique advantage of being in the technology space for you know quite a while in my career. And so it lives and breathes organically in those spaces a little bit easier. I don't know if this is where the talent space is heading, but I certainly think that it's an approach that's worth researching. You don't have to have it at the organizational level. I would you know, be very transparent in Vistaprint was an organization that was striving to do it at every level, but it wasn't adopted 100%. It lived in the technology organization, but really it was my team within people that was working in an agile way. You can work agile yourself if you're an individual contributor and that's the way that you want to work. I think the significant pro of agile is it's really rooted in flexibility. And so it's not a one size all fits approach and, and it doesn't have to be a certain way, but you can pick certain components of agile that you think are going to help. And so I would say If you're in an organization that faces the very common problem of work prioritization or feeling like it's an overwhelming amount of work to do with too little time, then I think it's worth researching how certain methodologies and practices of Agile could help. You might just need a Kanban board, or you might just need to be able to have more frequent meetings around prioritization. You might just want to establish your project teams a little bit differently so that your cross-functional dependencies are identified earlier. There's lots of ways that you can approach it that doesn't feel like you're completely flipping and your organization doesn't have to adopt it in order for it to help you. We've talked with quite a few leaders over the past few years. And I'm noticing a real shift toward approaching learning and development initiatives in particular, but also employee benefits programs, employee experience programs, mental health programs in this style. And I think the difference is that very few organizations are referring to it as agile, even though it is, right? It's coming up with where is the idea coming from? What do our employees actually need? What do they want? What can we offer them? What can't we offer them? And starting to take a more iterative approach and really approaching it like a product. And listening to you walk through this, it's that approach of being able to be more lean and move more quickly that keeps your organizations that you've been with more competitive and able to serve your employees. So really appreciate you diving so deeply into this. This is such an important topic. Switching gears a little bit, you know, you've been in a variety of organizations within the tech space, as you mentioned, and you touched a little bit on your career changes earlier. You've had an opportunity to design great employee experiences from top to bottom. And I just want to dive into some of the different programs that you've been able to roll out and order to make the employee experience even better. Yeah, absolutely. We touched on employee experience a bit before, but one of the things that I think is so important to talk about, and I imagine that everyone listening has sat in this kind of situation. You've been in a meeting and your meetings about employee experience and everybody begins talking and like 
phrases like this will be thrown around the room, like employee experience is really important, or we need programs that enable employee experience, or employee experience is gaining momentum, so we need to focus on it. Or like my favorite, where you're talking about a specific program and they'll say, does XYZ and, you know, help drive our employee experience? And in those moments, just want to scream, what does this mean? What are we actually talking about? Because at its core, employee experience is just your work. Like that is all that it is. And it means nothing if you're not going to put a clear and concise meaning behind it. So the talking in circles about candidate and employee experience is really where I think companies go off path. The differentiator between throwing around buzzwords and then actually putting intentional programs behind that, that then mean something. You could create an employee experience that's terrible, and that could be intentional. You could say, hey, I only want warriors in my organization. And so my intent is I'm going to put my employees through the ringer and make sure that they're really loyal to our organization. I wouldn't recommend that as an employee experience, but you could certainly do that. Or you could say, we're going to actually create terrible candidate experience up the front because we want to make sure people that work for us are really dedicated to us. Again, not a best practice that I would encourage, but you could do that. And so for me, I think you will not be successful in enabling or rolling out any program that's tied to an employee experience without being really intentional on how you want your employees to feel, how you want your candidates to feel, and why you want them to feel that way. And then that becomes the foundation for every program that you build on top of it. So a great tie back to this is I think employee experience and total rewards go hand in hand. And so there is an expectation up front of you need to know what your employee experience is intended to be in order to reward and recognize your employees appropriately. So for example, you may be an organization that says, I want our employees to feel long-term value in their roles and like they're growing to become deep subject matter experts. Great. That likely means that you don't want to put people on a fast track promotion scale. You want individuals to stay in their levels for long periods of time and gain lots and lots of skills and become a deep subject matter expert before they move on to something. So your salary bands are going to likely need to be larger. You're going to need to have less spans and layers. And then you're going to subsequently need more kind of in the moment on time rewards that go along with that so that you have the retentive value of keeping employees there without promoting them, but still making them feel rewarded. So your spot bonus program might need to be larger, or you may need more often recognition from peers on programs that they're doing versus having short spans and layers and promoting people pretty quickly up the ladder. So that's kind of at a tie back of how I think an intentional employee and candidate experience really drives programs. And then I'm happy to dive into more detail, but I'll let you yeah, kind of drive no, it from there. Absolutely. I'd love to dive into more detail because this idea of, I, first of all, I fully agree that if you don't know what you want out of an employee experience, what does that mean? But as you mentioned, what works for one organization doesn't work for another organization. And so if you don't know what your organization is trying to do, it's impossible to make progress. So diving into the full designing benefits around your employee experience and how you want to retain, engage, and motivate your employees. You have a lot of opinions on this. And we talked about this a little bit before our show. And so I do want to make sure we dig into this more. What types of rewards do you think are becoming more and more important today to meet employees where they are and ensure that they're getting the support they need to feel valued within their organization? 
Yeah, I have very strong opinions on this and love chatting about it. But I think in you know one of our conversations previously, I think also came up the idea of why employees are moving on from employers more frequently now. And I think that there's a real cause for the two-year itch. And it's generally related back to how your employees feel like they're rewarded and recognized. And does that align to the experience that you're trying to build? I think that it's really important that there is a diverse offering of rewards and recognitions that you have that really create a more bespoke kind of experience for your employees. And so not everyone values things the same way. I had team members who didn't value equity and it you know, wasn't a part of their plan at others that really valued equity. I had some that wanted time off in lieu of a bonus and some that were really involved in corporate social responsibility and wanted to know how they could turn their recognition into a charitable donation for someone else. Those are all really meaningful ways to give back to employees that doesn't overload an organization. Having many offerings in terms of rewards and recognition doesn't dilute the offerings at all. It makes them more meaningful to individuals that are sitting in your organization. So I think having a catalog of offerings is the most important thing. And I think giving leaders choice in how they reward their employees is incredibly important because that's who we're depending on to know them. That's who we're depending on to know and develop and lead these teams. And so why not give them the choice and how those individuals are then rewarded? I've seen some really creative and unique things that I think are amazing for retentive value at Vistaprint. We had the Vista break. So every five years, you get a four week sabbatical that you could tack your own PTO time off to. I know HubSpot did something similar. I think they may have given a cash bonus with that. I'm not sure that might just been a rumor mill. <laughs> In addition to that, a friend who's at a company who allows leaders to travel to different countries with their families and live there for three to six months and experience that office's culture and get exposure to their family. Like what an incredible retentive value to be able to say, you're going to bring your children over to another country and your family and experience that together along with experiencing another side of the company. Like those are the things that allow individuals to really grow roots in an organization and stay for a long period of time. Is equity important? Yeah. Is, is compensation to make sure you're paying your employees fair important? Absolutely. But it's also important that they're able to grow roots and feel rewarded without just looking what's the next promotion as well. Unique opportunities is what I think really drives individuals to stay at organizations longer. It's not just about the promotion or the bonus anymore. And it does feel for a lot of, we're, we're almost raised that way, right? Do you find that these custom rewards where managers get to decide or leaders get to decide what benefits and rewards they can provide for their individual team members. Do you find that has increased retention of employees or is it more just increasing the engagement of the employee while they're there? How has that played out for you in the past? Yeah, I'll speak for my own experience here as opposed to program experience. I I'm probably a disruptor by nature <laughs> and a little bit of a rule breaker by nature, which is maybe uncommon for people in the HR space, but I tend to reward my employees how I think it, it's most meaningful, whether the company agrees with that or not. So if I need to tell my team, hey, you know what, you're taking that week off and I don't want you to put that time in if we don't have unlimited time off because you've been giving so much and I take that risk, I think that that's really important. If I want to take my team and do a team building session somewhere off site, then I'm going to fight to use my budget for that because I think that it's really important. 
So I think that trust in leadership here to reward employees is really what's going to allow the correlation to long-term retentive value. I think that by people organization enabling a total rewards catalog and giving managers the power to reward their employees how they see fit, it allows those relationships to grow, which is what I think is the biggest driver on retention. People wanting to stay with the organization that they're at because of the people that they're working with and how those people make them feel. We just did an interview with Megan Bickle at Dropbox. And one of the things that she mentioned was Laszlo Bach at Humu, who had mentioned this idea of a retention cliff and how we're, for the past two years, people have stayed put. And now everybody, right? The vast majority of professionals today are asking themselves, am I happy? Do I want to stay where I am right right now? And so this is the opportunity for organizations to lean back and say, okay, what do our employees need? It is not one size fits all. It is not that everybody in the company needs more equity, right? It's not that everybody needs more vacation. Everybody needs what they need. And so listening to today's professionals is something that I don't think HR leaders have done enough in the past. And a lot of those decisions have come from the top down and it's time to come from either the middle up or the middle down or the bottom up, but listening to everybody and hearing their perspectives and taking this, what I'll summarize as a portfolio approach. And you called it something different earlier. Catalog. Catalog. Yeah. So taking this catalog approach, I hope to see more of it. So we'll continue to watch, but what have you seen is maybe cutting edge that's happening beyond what you've shared so far? Anything come to mind? I don't know that I've seen some really cutting edge stuff come to life as of recently, as much as it is the intent of it behind it. And I think that you said a lot of really great things wrapped up in the last synopsis of my question. And I think a few things are, so I read an article recently and it was about rewards and recognition and the differentiators, the percentage difference of rewarding high performers versus the rest of your organization. And so it showed that the delta between the rest of your organization and a high performer on average for each one of these topics. So whether it was like promotions or career advancement or salary increases was like three to 5%. So overall you have these individuals that you're labeling as top performers and they're likely working way above and beyond kind of the reasonable expectations of an organization because that's how you get labeled as a high performer. And I've worked in organizations who have listed it as like a competition, which felt very wrong to me, but reality is some organizations do look at that. And then at the end of the day, you're being rewarded like three to 5% higher than other peers. I don't know that the answer is you reward your high performers even more than that, as much as it is start taking a holistic approach at Do you have the right people in your organization? And if so, does it matter who's a high performer or not? Or does it matter that they all are enabled and rewarded appropriately for who they are and what means the most to them and their contributions to the company, as opposed to uh, separating individuals and putting them into these categories and then not actually rewarding them for the category that we're giving them? So helpful. And nothing to add there because I just think that's so incredibly important. And I hope that more organizations will pay more attention to that. We are getting close on time. And I want to make sure that we talk about two topics. One is that what you've just outlined is important, but how can managers and leaders advocate to do what you've done? What advice do you have to somebody who wants to be able to personalize this reward system and feels like they can't? How would you recommend they approach that? Look, I would say... My personal brand is one 
that's not always well liked <laughs> within every organization. And I think that can be scary to individuals. I think one thing that really drives me to be okay and confident in being a disruptor is the team that I lead and in my role and responsibility that I feel that I have as a leader. And so it is a lot of that is driven on the fact of I don't bring deep expertise into the teams that I lead. I bring expertise in other areas. And so while I have to build partnerships that are unique, that require a lot of trust in the teams on me and me for them subsequently. And so that I think that then that loyalty drives me to be able to have those conversations up front and find creative ways to use budget. And look, there's been times where I've done things out of pocket and they haven't been vastly expensive, but they've meant so much to the team because they are knowing, they know that it comes from me personally. And so I think that you should feel comfortable speaking up about it. I think that you should absolutely feel comfortable kind of advocating for the use of it. And then honestly, and this is probably terrible advice and no one should follow it, but be okay breaking the rules a little bit too, if it means doing the right thing for your team. And if you feel like at the end of the day, you'll feel better breaking the rules and knowing that the outcome was that an employee knows their value and knows how you feel about them. I think it's great advice and everybody should absolutely break the rules. That's exactly why this <laughs> podcast exists, which is if we kept doing things the way that we thought they were supposed to be done in the past, nothing would change. And where we're seeing the most impact for individuals, for leaders, for companies is when people say, why are we doing it that way? And this unspoken rule that holds us back is often the rule that we break that leads to amazing outcomes. Ask for forgiveness later. Just don't break any like compliance laws because your HR team will be in a tizzy, but. Um. Totally. I have a tagline <laughs> to my career. And that's what I generally say is I don't want to ever be a traditional HR person. It's a traditional HR leader, but as long as it's not illegal or immoral and it supports the business, let's get it done. Let's figure out a way to get it done. Wrapping up here. I have a final two questions that I always ask my guests. And one is what resources are you leaning on right now? And the other is what advice would you give yourself, say, early on in your leadership career, like when you started taking on leadership roles? Great question. So I'd say from a resource standpoint, I right now have a leverage, which I think is just like a, a really strong network of peers that I think that we have come together so frequently during the last year just to share ideas and best practices and where individuals are and you know what they're thinking. And so I think that there's tons of articles and loads of books and podcasts galore that I could listen to. And I do to do all of that, but it doesn't replace the kind of face-to-face -face network connections that you have and keeping them and really sharing those thoughts and best practices. I find that we come up with even better ideas together by leveraging that peer network. The advice that I would give myself is, I guess, advice that I took in some ways, which is be okay with the unknown, be okay with the scary and be okay living in the gray because it, living in that gray and living in that uncomfortableness of, okay, I don't really know anything about what I'm going to do, but I'm going to jump in head first and do it has allowed me to experience some really incredible things with some really incredible people and organizations. And so I don't regret that at all even though it probably brought me lots of stress and anxiety during it. And I would say really kind of when you don't have the confidence in yourself, but someone else has the confidence in you, adopt that and feel okay with it. There were so many times where 
I was walking into a situation thinking, I can't believe I'm going to leave this large team and I don't know what I'm doing. Or, And the reality was I did. I just, we go about it in a non-traditional way and that's okay. Words to live by. Thank you so much, Amber. Amber, I appreciate you making the time to share your perspective and expertise, but overall, just thank you so much for being here and, and spending time with me. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for sure. And really excited to see where my next journey goes with Dutchie and I'm super excited to check back in and have further conversations, but also like for anyone interested in Dutchie and in the cannabis technology space, I would really encourage you to look into our company. We're really passionate about what we're doing and growing a ton. So always looking for smart, passionate people to join our team as well. Thank you. Absolutely. And we will link to Dutchie's website. So if you're looking for a great career, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes. 